When I was a teenager, I worked for about a year and a half at Chick-fil-A. I don't know if anybody in here ever worked there. Okay, one or two. Uh, I enjoyed it. It truly was my pleasure uh, to work there. And uh, I I loved being a part of that staff. But I I did have one manager for a while who could be a bit sarcastic at times. And one day an employee came to him during a slow period of the day and said, what can I do to fill the time? Well, the manager didn't care for that question because he liked us to take initiative. And so he somewhat sarcastically and flippantly said to this 15-year-old employee, you know what, why don't you walk down the hall to the big walk-in freezer and stand there for a while and just tell me if it's cold enough? Well, uh, it was clearly not a literal command. However, about 10 or 15 minutes later, the boss suddenly went, where did that guy go? And uh, sure enough, he walked down the hall once he remembered what he had said to find this employee standing in the walk-in freezer, shivering, cold to the bone, perhaps a few moments away from becoming a human popsicle. And uh, at that moment, realized that the words he said had had a potentially devastating impact on this young man's life, had he not found him in time. I think of that story when I read this verse, Proverbs eighteen twenty-one: death and life are in the power of the tongue. In that case, it was quite literally true. The things that we say can bring life or they can bring death. They can bring hope or despair, encouragement or discouragement. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What you and I speak has immense power to affect the lives of those around us. Uh, The authors of Proverbs, Solomon and others who wrote the book of Proverbs, understood that fact because they observed it in the world around them. And so a huge portion of the book of Proverbs is dedicated to this subject of what we say, of our words. In fact, one uh, commentary I read this week said that of 915 verses in the book of Proverbs, 150 of those verses mention Our speech, that's one-sixth of the book of Proverbs, is dedicated to the subject of what we say because what we say matters. Not only is it powerful, but the things that we say reveal our hearts. One of the most profound statements that works its way through the scripture is this idea that what you and I say springs out of what's in our heart. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Or Proverbs says it this way in 15.7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of fools. What you say reflects who you are in your heart. So we have a tendency, I think, often to say, you know what, I just, I struggle a little bit with angry words or gossipy words or perverted words or whatever it may be. What the scripture would actually say is if you and I struggle with those things, the problem really isn't simply our lips, it's our heart. Uh, We speak angry words because to some degree we are angry people. We speak gossipy words because there is something in our hearts that leads us to judge or shame or expose other people. That is why James says in chapter 3 that the person who can control his tongue or master his speech would be a perfect person. 
Because if you can get your speech under control, that probably means that your heart is pure and perfect as well. The reality is that none of us are that perfect person. Uh, We're going to talk about a number of characteristics this morning of what godly speech looks like. And the odds are really good that all of us in this room will see in one or more of those characteristics areas where we need to grow, where we look at what we say and we think, "Mm, my speech does not reflect the character of God in this area. I would imagine all of us will see those areas in our life. If you do not, then you can go home. You're perfect, right? Or you're a liar. Because the reality is that all of us need work on our speech. And because speech springs from the heart, all of this change begins as we connect with God and ask for his wisdom and ask for his power through the spirit to change. Because this is such a significant subject, we're going to spend this week and then the following two weeks on the subject of words from the book of Proverbs. This week, what I'm going to talk about is the positive side of speech, godly words. What does it look like to say righteous and godly things with our mouths? Next week, we will look at speech you want to avoid, sinful words through the Proverbs. And then in two weeks, when Brian is back, he's going to talk about truth and falsehood, lying and telling the truth. We'll touch on that this morning But Brian will do an entire sermon on it in a couple of weeks because there's enough material in the book of Proverbs on that subject alone to constitute a whole sermon. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the subject of words. And this morning, we're going to look at several characteristics of what godly words look like. And here's the question I want us to keep foremost in our minds. What would it look like in my life, in my marriage, in my relationships with friends or roommates or at work or in my neighborhood? What would it look like if my speech reflected the character of God and the characteristics we see here? How would it change my life and the lives around me if I use my speech in a way consistent with who God is to reflect him? If I ultimately use my speech in a way that reflects Jesus Christ, what would that look like? How would it change me and those around me? All right, so let's look at some of the characteristics of godly words and lock that question in our minds as we move through the morning. First of all, godly words are honest. They're honest. Proverbs twenty four twenty six, a very vivid image says, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Now in the ancient world, it wasn't completely unheard of for close friends, even of the same sex, to kiss one another on the lips in greeting. Uh, It didn't always have the romantic meaning that it has in our culture. Instead, it was a sign of brotherly or sisterly affection and friendship and trust. If I can trust you enough to get close enough to kiss you on the lips, you must be a close friend. Right? And an honest answer, the proverb says, is like that. It is refreshing. It is Uh, an action that promotes closeness and intimacy with another person. All of us have experienced that. Perhaps you've known a person who is refreshingly honest, that the things they say are truthful. They don't lie. They don't manipulate. They don't guilt trip. They don't hide or evade. But instead, they're not afraid to speak the truth, to speak it clearly. Now we're going to talk about tempering that with kindness in a moment. But those who are refreshingly honest, honest, as the proverb says, it's like a kiss on the lips. It produces closeness. 
And quite often we are afraid to be honest because uh, when we lie, what are we trying to do? Well, when we lie, we want to make ourselves look better or at least prevent ourselves from looking worse than we already do. But honesty promotes trust and builds relationships in our marriages, in our friendships, at work, in our neighborhoods. A number of years ago, my wife and I read a book by Bill Hybels called Honest to God. And in one of the chapters, he talks about truth-telling in relationships. And he likens truth-telling at times to entering what he calls the tunnel of chaos. It's this dark, scary tunnel, and you don't know always what the outcome is going to be, right? If I give somebody honest feedback, particularly somebody close to me, if I say, it hurts my feelings when you look at your phone while I'm talking to you, I don't know how that person may respond to me, right? They may get angry. They may get defensive. They may think of something I do wrong. They may smack me in the face with their phone. I have no idea. And so I may enter this chaotic scary, difficult time of having to work through issues in a relationship that need to be worked through. But the benefit is that on the other side of that tunnel, you find relationships that are lively and peaceful and truthful and close. And so at times it is worth entering that difficult tunnel to be honest. Honesty is the path toward genuine relationships. That uh, doesn't mean that you always say everything that comes to your mind because not everything that comes to your mind is true or right or accurate. And it does mean, and we'll see, that godly words are also kind and encouraging. But in the context of our relationships, we speak the truth rather than falsehood. Again, Brian will talk more about that subject in a couple of weeks. But godly words are first and foremost honest. Secondly, they are kind and encouraging. A couple of passages to look at from Proverbs. Uh, chapter 16, verse 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Now, certainly in their world, honey would have been the sweetest treat they can imagine. Uh, many of us still like honey, right? Maybe for breakfast this morning, you had a nice warm biscuit drizzled with honey. And you loved it, right? And you felt that smoothness go down your throat and that sweetness give life to your bones. Maybe some of you have taken the honey bottle and just sort of squeezed it into your mouth, right? Am I the only one? Okay, I hope not. All right. I love peanut butter and honey sandwiches. If you've never tried that, try that for lunch this afternoon. Right? I hope you ate breakfast. I know I'm making you hungry. Honey is sweet. Honey is smooth. Honey gives life and revitalization. That's the way that gracious words are. What are gracious words? They are those words that convey kindness and favor, often even undeserved toward another person. Right? That's the character of God. Right? God is honest and truthful. He never lies or evades, but he is also gracious and kind. And the words he speaks are designed for our good to give us his love, his mercy, and his favor. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Even when you have to say difficult words, they ought always to be tempered with kindness and grace, which incidentally is one of the reasons I do not think that the best place to confront another person about a sin issue or a challenging issue is on Facebook or Twitter or via text message or email. Because they cannot see your face. They cannot hear your voice. They cannot hear the grace and the love and the mercy in your voice. All they see is black and white. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Another passage from Proverbs. Anxiety 
in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word or an encouraging word makes him glad. All of us have found times where we've been lifted up by an encouraging word just at the moment when we needed it. When we felt low, when we heard the lies of the enemy that we were no good or we heard that God didn't care for us or that uh, there was something deeply wrong with us that could not be fixed, an encouraging word can lift us up. Right? Many years ago, a friend uh, urged me to create an encouragement file to store nice notes and cards and letters and emails and things like that that I received. Uh, not for the purpose of puffing myself up, but for just those moments when I felt the most low and wondered where is God and what is he doing in my life, I can read those words and be encouraged. And so I have all kinds of emails and notes, some from friends even in this room, others from my family, Father's Day cards, birthday cards. I ran across this week as I was looking at it, a nice card from my wife from several years ago, uh, detailing things that she liked and appreciated about me, none of which I'm going to share with you this morning because none of your business, but it encouraged me, right? Mark Twain is well known for having said, I can live for two months on a good compliment. And you may have felt that. All too infrequently do we give and receive encouraging, kind, uplifting words. I ran across a study, a long-term study done by a psychologist named John Gottman in which he asked this question, what is the difference between marriages that last for the long haul versus those that do not? What Uh, factors contribute to a relationship falling apart versus those that stay together for a long time. And he studied them for six or seven years, starting uh, at the beginning and all the way through, measuring how they talked to each other, how they treated each other. And here's what he found. And I'm going to read from an article about the study for a moment. Said this, contempt is the number one factor that tears couples apart. People who are focused on criticizing their partners miss a whopping 50% of positive things their partners are doing, and they see negativity when it's not there. I love this line, being mean is the death knell of relationships, right? So just be nice. Kindness, on the other hand, glues couples together. Research independent from theirs has shown that kindness, along with emotional stability, is the most important predictor of satisfaction and stability in a marriage. There's a great deal of evidence showing the more someone receives or witnesses kindness, the more they will be kind to themselves, which leads to upward upward spirals of love and generosity in a relationship. I love that last line. Upward spirals of love and generosity. When I see kindness and it's expressed toward me, I respond with kindness. They respond with kindness and it spirals upward rather than downward. This is a no-brainer, right? They didn't need a long-term study to tell us this because it's in the word of God. But all too often, we forget, don't we? And the first thing to come out of our mouth is anger or criticism. What if every criticism of your spouse or your children or your roommate or your classmates, or your neighbors? What if every single one was preceded and followed by three words of encouragement and not just at the moment of criticism so you can diffuse that awkwardness, but preceding it for days and weeks and maybe even months and years ahead of time, you are filled with mountains of encouragement before you say a critical word. Would that change your marriage? Would that change your relationship with your kids or your coworkers? or your boss, or your neighbors, or your roommate? Absolutely. 
Words that are righteous and godly are sweet like honey. Kind, encouraging, and also truthful. Thirdly, they are peaceful. Godly words are peaceful. Chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And also Proverbs twenty-five, fifteen: With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. That's again, very vivid imagery like we often find in the Proverbs. A bone, of course, is the most rigid part of your body. It doesn't bend, right? It may break, but it takes a lot to break a bone. And yet it says a soft tongue can break a bone. The idea is really that a person's heart that is hardened and angry and filled with conflict can be Penetrate it with a kind, soft, peaceful word. Even a ruler who sits on his throne, a king who is hard-hearted and angry and bent on argument and conflict and war can be persuaded with a soft tongue. Godly words are words of reconciliation and peace in the midst of conflict. One of my favorite stories from the life of David comes from 1 Samuel 25. When David was fleeing in the wilderness from King Saul, he ran across a man whose name was Nabal. Nabal is a Hebrew word that means fool. Now, in the ancient world, you may wonder, why is it that anybody would name their child fool? Well, in the ancient world, they didn't name their kids often until they were two or three years old, until they got a sense of what their character was like. And so I guess this guy's dad at one point went, yep, he's a fool, and named him Nabal. And as David is moving through the wilderness, there hits a point where he needs food and sustenance for his men as they're fleeing. So he sent an emissary to Nabal and he said, will you provide us with the supplies we need and will you shelter us for the night? Nabal sends back this very arrogant, angry message. I will not. I don't know who you are. Who is David? I'm not going to help. And David turns to his men and goes, guys, strap on your swords. We're going to go kill Nabal. And they begin to march toward this man's tent to take him out. When Nabal's wife, Abigail, whose name means my father rejoices, she hears what's coming and she rushes to meet David. She sends food ahead and she sends gifts ahead and she falls down at David's feet and she says, my Lord, listen to me. First thing she says is my husband's name is Nabal and like the name, so is the man. He is a fool. And yet, David, God has called you to be the king of Israel. He's anointed and chosen you and that will happen and God's favor is on you. And David, you don't want to taint your rule by shedding unnecessary blood. And David says, this is a wise woman who speaks words of peace and reconciliation and he backs off and he did not kill Nabal. Now Nabal uh, had a heart attack anyway when he found out what Abigail did and uh, died. But she was a woman who spoke peace and reconciliation. In fact, we named our middle child Abigail, hoping that she will be that type of emissary of peace and reconciliation and also stay away from people like Nabal. It's a person who speaks words of reconciliation. Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago and had the opportunity to hear from Celestin Musakura as he talked about his ministry in Africa with Alarm, African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. One of the things he talked about is that uh, his primary ministry is to bring reconciliation between parties that are at 
at conflict and often even at war with one another. And uh, as I talked with him uh, before and after he spoke, he said one of the things that he often does is help to people to temper their angry words. He said often when somebody is hurt, they'll go on the radio or they'll go on TV or they'll go on the internet and they will say or write angry words that exacerbate a conflict rather than create peace. And in fact, in some cases, say words that can lead to further loss of life. And so he said, part of what we do is speak to people and say, speak peacefully with words of forgiveness, words of peace, words of gentleness that bring reconciliation. Because remember, reconciliation is part of God's character, that he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, that he reconciles Jew and Gentile and those who are far apart from one another through Jesus Christ. What if in your family, You became a person of peace and reconciliation when there is conflict. That your words, instead of escalating a conflict, diffused the conflict. When your spouse says, you know, you left the dishes in the sink again, you don't say, you're just like your mother. But instead, you speak words of peace. What if we were those types of people on Facebook and Twitter as well? rather than escalating conflicts, bringing peace, right? Peace and reconciliation reflects the heart of God. Godly words are honest, kind, and encouraging. Thirdly, peaceful. Fourthly, they are pure. Godly words are pure. Proverbs 15, verse 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Pure simply means undefiled or untainted with sin. Uh, When I was about nine or 10, I remember a friend of mine at school coming up to me and he said, would you like to hear a dirty joke? Now, I didn't really even understand what that meant very much at that age. And I said, I don't know. And he goes, okay, there's this horse and the horse fell into a big brown mud puddle and he was all dirty and he just laughed and he laughed and he laughed, right? And that was his idea of a dirty joke. Now, obviously, as I grew older, I understood that's not what most people mean when they say dirty joke, is it? Most people mean a joke that is tainted with the denigration of the human body or of sexuality or something along those lines. Uh, We live in a culture that is full of impure speech. And most of us, when we think of impure speech, of course, we think of cuss words or we think of perverted jokes or whatever it may be. But actually, pure speech goes even above and beyond that. Purity is something that is undefiled with any type of sin, with greed, with pride, undefiled with anger, or whatever it may be. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century philosopher, said to be pure in heart is to desire one thing. And in his estimation, of course, that one thing is God. Kierkegaard was commenting on the Beatitudes of Christ. To be pure in heart is to desire one thing. If our words come from our hearts, that means that pure speech is speech that reflects the fact that more than anything else, we desire to know and honor and reflect God. That is pure speech, speech that is untainted or undefiled by sin. And imagine for a minute that you had a faucet at your home. That 50% of the time, it gave you clear, drinkable, beautiful water. And 50% of the time, it gave you raw sewage. You would probably stop drinking from that faucet ever, wouldn't you? You would keep your distance from it. You might try to get it fixed. 
but it wouldn't be attractive to you. That is an image of impure speech. It is foul and it pushes those away that we really want to draw close because it doesn't reflect the character of God. On the other hand, if you had a faucet that you could always trust to provide pure, clear, sweet drinking water, you would draw near to it and drink from it all the time. That is an image of those who speak words that are excellent and pure and filled with the holiness of God. So that's why the author of Proverbs tells us godly speech is, it is pure, free from sin, undefiled. And then fifthly, it is timely. It is timely. The right words at the right time. Uh, this next proverb may be your favorite one of the morning. Proverbs twenty-seven fourteen. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. Right? Some of you want to print this out and give it to your small children or put it on your bedroom door in the morning. If you bless someone with a loud voice early in the morning, it is reckoned a curse. Now, why is that? It's a blessing. It's not as if you're saying something bad. You're actually saying something good. What is the problem? It's all about timing. Right? Save your blessing till 7 a.m. Give it at the right time rather than the wrong time. Timing matters. Right? Words at the wrong time are not well received. Words at the right time are beautiful. Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. It's beautiful. It's refreshing. Knowing when to say the right thing at the right time is probably the hardest aspect of mastering our speech because often we say good things at a time when people are not prepared or able to hear them well. Many of us, when we were kids, learned that if we wanted to ask something or make a request of our parents, we had to choose our timing well. So if dad came home and said that the radiator on the car needed to be replaced, that wasn't the time to talk about our birthday present, was it? Because you're going to get a radiator for birthday, if you ask right then. But you waited until he was in a good mood, until he was ready to hear, didn't you? That, on a real basic level, is, is timeliness. And it's very difficult to know, when should I say this? And when should I be silent? When should I encourage when should I rebuke? When should I reveal information and when should I not say something? Again, this is why James says, if you can master the tongue, you're a perfect person because it's deeply difficult to do. How can we do that? How can we know what to say at the right time? Well, of course, the first and primary thing to do is pray. As James tells us also, ask God for wisdom and he will give it. Wisdom provides the ability for us to know when to speak, when to remain silent, and what to say. And then pay attention to the people around us. For some people, if they are deeply hungry, you really don't want to say anything to them at all for a while. If they're very tired, if somebody is really grumpy, you may have to wait until another time to express your concern, unless your concern is that they're always grumpy, in which case you may have to say it right then. But knowing how to say the right thing at the right time requires supernatural wisdom and supernatural power. And none of us in this room have yet mastered that art. 
And so we ask God through the Spirit for his wisdom. And there's a reason that John in the New Testament calls Jesus the Word of God. Right? There's multiple reasons, but one of them is this. Jesus is a living, breathing illustration of the types of things God says. Always truthful. Always loving and kind. Always pure. Always said the right thing at the right time. Somebody asked me after the first service this morning, how did Jesus know when he needed to speak harsh words to people like the Pharisees and kind words to somebody like the woman at the well? My answer is consistent. Well, partly he's God. That makes a big difference. But also consistently listening to the voice of his father and reflecting his character and knowing what was right to say to the right people at the right time. Jesus is the spoken and visible and living word of God. And so if you and I have a prayer of speaking well, we need to know the character of Jesus and ask God for wisdom because again, speech comes from our heart. Maybe that you are here this morning and you're aware that your heart is not in tune with God's because you don't know him. You've not ever started a relationship with God through Jesus. And the great news is that God offers eternal life and friendship with him freely to all who trust that Jesus died for their sin and rose again. And if you are here this morning and that's something you have not done, then this may be the Lord's way of calling you to know him through Jesus. To say, you know what? You're aware that your speech is impure or dishonest because your heart is and it needs cleansing through the power of God. And that only comes to those who trust in Christ. For those who know Jesus, then what we are called to do each day, each moment, is ask for wisdom, ask for help, ask for the power of God so that our words look like the speech that reflects God's character. To continually come before him and ask for help. Let's ask a question as we close. How can you and I use our words to reflect the loving and holy character of God? And I want to return to what I said at the beginning. How would your life, your relationships, your marriage, your work life, your friendships, how would they be different if your speech reflected these characteristics? I'm going to guess they would be dramatically different. Because I know that's true in my life. And so I'm certain it's true in yours as well. That as you've listened this morning, there are areas of your speech that you know need work. And so the challenge is to submit our hearts and our lips to the often difficult but loving, patient hand of God. And ask for help to speak those things that reflect his character. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. And what a convicting topic this is for all of us. Father, we pray, just give us wisdom to know what to say, when to say it, to whom to say it. Make us ambassadors of your peace and reconciliation and purity and honesty. Father, teach us wisdom. We thank you for your word. And we pray now as we go out that our 
hands and feet and lips would do your will through your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.